I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. From our perspective, there, there's no trade-off at all. You know, great cultures lead to great outcomes. People, I think, confuse the causation. You know, they kind of think, oh, well, this company's profitable, so they can spend a lot of money on things around development and pay people really, really well on money. But it's almost always the causation is the other way. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Paul Bassett is my guest today on Scaling Up, and it makes for a unique episode. As most listeners will know, Paul and his brother Andrew, along with Matt Rockman, founded Seek in 1997, and in doing so, carved the path in Australia for great technology businesses. This was a time when the internet itself was still in its infancy in Australia, and it really is quite hard to fathom the foresight required to build what is now a $7 billion company. Paul left Seek in 2011 and has since founded SquarePeg, one of Australia and Asia's leading venture capital companies, with investments including Canva, Deputy, Airwallex, and of course Bruce Buchanan's Rocked, who was featured in episode two of this podcast. Because of the duration and success of Paul's career, we traverse time zones in this conversation to extract the key lessons he's learnt through the lens of Seek and how he's applied them in the years since. There's no one in my mind who has seen the full spectrum of the ecosystem as a founder, a board member and an investor, and so being able to compare and contrast all these experiences makes for a fascinating conversation. Paul is undoubtedly an Australian treasure for so many reasons, and I'm hoping after this conversation you can see why. For those interested in further insights and commentary, TDM Growth Partners has been posting lots of great content lately, including a written series on what frameworks we use to assess great CEOs, CFOs, and non-executive directors. It's probably easiest just to follow at TDM underscore growth on Twitter to get all the news and views there. And you can always find me on Twitter at Eddie Cowan. Paul, welcome to what is a very special episode of Scaling Up. Uh, we have so many wells to fish in today. I'm just going to get cracking Looking straight into it. it. Uh, but I think it's important to, to create some architecture for the chat because you have seen the full spectrum of the ecosystem. You were obviously a founder and a CEO of a, a publicly listed company for a long time in Seek. You're a board member at the largest conglomerate in Australia. And now as a, one of the godfathers of the, the venture capital scene in Australia, having started Square Peg with over a billion dollars under management. So each, I imagine, has involved a, a diverse set of skills. But what I'm really trying to drag out today is how those skills have translated throughout time. Yeah. And so all those experiences that you had at Seek for you know what was nearly 15 years, how they have been put into practice in, in later years. So as I said, there might be some overlapping themes yeah. that's what happens when you've been around for a while there's like a lot of there's a bit of experience well, indeed well <laughs> it's got to be some advantage of age there's not much indeed but i thought i'd say that up front because this timeline leaping for listeners hopefully isn't too confusing but i think it's really important to, sure. to set that up front so let, let's start with the founding story of seek i think that's a, a great place to start 
Yeah, I mean, the, the founding story is sort of interesting. I mean, the backstory, if you like, was I, I was working as a lawyer, graduated from uni 1991. Um, you know, for those that remember or, or students of, you know, modern Australian history, 91 was the last recession we had in this country before 2020. Um, and it was a really brutal time in the Australian economy. So a lot of our, I worked at a firm in Melbourne called Arnold Bock Liebler, um, a lot of high net worth clients, very entrepreneurial clients, a lot of them in a form of one form of financial distress or another, 18% interest rates, lots of debt, people just taking on more and more debt to buy property because property values kept going up and up and up in the in the 80s. And so that was in hindsight, an amazing time for me to start my career and, and really had a lot of exposure to sort of a lot of entrepreneurial people, but also just getting a really good understanding of risk. The sort of the second thing that's really relevant there was um, probably 1994, maybe early 95, I would say, Evan Thornley rang me up and Evan was an old an old friend from uni. We were at Melbourne Uni together studying, I think Evan did law arts, but both doing law. Evan had been president of, of the student union at Melbourne Uni and very involved in student politics, but he'd gone on to McKinsey. And then he rang me up one day and said, I'm coming back to Australia to set up an internet company. And I literally didn't know what the internet was in late 94, early 1995. I had this vague notion of this, you know, this information superhighway thing. Well, at the time, there were probably, what, less than 500,000 internet users in Australia? Yeah, in, in that period, way less. I would say, again, I don't know the number. I'm guessing it'd be less than 100,000 in, in 94, 95. It's hard to fathom. Really. It, it's really hard to fathom. Really took off in, you know, probably late 95, 96, 97, and, and, and so on. But, but a tiny number of internet users in Australia. So I started using internet you know we didn't have email at that point I think it was around that time we we started to get email at work and started to use email and and I you know access the internet through my parents place I go around there because I didn't even have a I didn't even have a pc and and kind of got blown away by the medium and it was a lot of fun acting for Evan in the early days of look smart his business which was an early search engine so I learned about the internet there and sort of got blown away and then March 16, 1997, my wife Sharon and I, Sharon was pregnant with our second child. We're looking to buy a bigger house, standing in an auction. We'd only discovered this house on the morning of the auction. You know, just standing at that auction and Sharon wanting us to bid. And I'm like, oh, we've only seen this house for 10 minutes and, you know, we're not going to bid on this. And we're sort of debating it on the spot. Just the whole frustration of looking for a house in the newspaper sort of came into my head. Mm. And the idea of, literally the idea of doing a real online real estate site came into my head. And um, I chatted to my brother, Andrew, about it, who was then as a management consultant at Booz Allen. Uh, chatted to Andrew about it. I remember getting onto the computer at mum and dad's and kind of looking and, and you know, I'm sure other people listening have had this exact same experience. When I had that idea, I was absolutely sure I was the first person in the world to have that idea. I was like, oh my God. Eureka. No one's ever, Eureka, no one's ever thought of it. So I remember getting onto the computer and discovering there were lots of real estate sites. I mean, not hundreds and hundreds, but already mm. there were online real estate sites locally and globally, online employment sites, online automotive sites. Anyway, cut long story short, Andrew and I started chatting about it. We got really enthused and excited by the idea. This was March, as I said. Um, over the next few months, we started working on a, on a business plan for an idea that, which became Seek, which became focused on jobs rather than real estate. I won't bore you with the detail, but we for a bunch of reasons were more attracted to the jobs market we were more nervous about the lack of fragmentation in real estate on, on the supply side and so there was much much more fragmentation on the supply side in jobs and so we were more attracted to that market clearly realestate.com.au being a what a 15 billion dollar market cap company you know it's would have, okay. would have been an okay market yeah. to go after yeah. but so, so uh, we went after jobs instead marketplace is winner takes most winner, or all that's so. exactly the philosophy you know the, the, there are three reasons we started 
seek? And this was kind of the basically three questions we answered during that phase of doing the business plan, which was number one, classifieds is an amazing business, uh, winner take all or winner take most economics, highly defensible, lots of pricing power, et cetera, et cetera. The old rivers of gold that Sir Frank Packer had talked about of the Fairfax publications. Um, number two, we were convinced in 1997 that it was going to move from print to online. It was really obvious to us. And frankly, we weren't the only people who had that insight. And then the third question and the hard question was, why us? And we just decided when we looked at the market, we were like, look, there's a few people dabbling. They're probably not doing it as seriously, as aggressively as they could be. Then you've got the newspaper guys. And we just thought the newspaper guys would be fighting with one hand tied behind their back. You know, the the online classifieds market in Australia was probably less than a million dollars across jobs, cars, real estate. The print market would have been approaching, jobs was about 800 million. So the print market would have been a couple of billion. You know, this is this is 23 years ago, uh, you know, really, really big market. Uh, and so the why us was around, we just thought there was a, this was a once in a generation opportunity for a startup without any legacy to take advantage of, of the transition from print to online. Uh, clearly, we wouldn't have set up a newspaper competing with uh, Fairfax and West Australian News and, and, the, and the News Corp publication. So it was the disruptive technology of the internet that, of course, allowed this. Um, I actually had a chat sort of right at the end of this process once Andrew and I decided we wanted to pursue this opportunity. I chatted to my boss, um, Joe and Mark, who was a senior partner at Block Level, and told them what I wanted to do. I wanted to be really upfront with them and ask them for a leave of absence to kind of go and pursue this opportunity and, and mention that I'd approached some clients. And, and literally the only people we approached were Irvin and Matt, who are long-standing clients, and I'd got to know them really, really well. And Matt was a bit sick of working with his dad, and they were keen to back us, and, and they wrote the first cheque, which was a million and a half dollars between them. And, and Matt joined us as a co-founder. And then we got started in November November 97. Incredible story. I mean, things to remember here, uh, you're a lawyer, no internet experience, no yep. startup experience. Yep. There's no pathway really to to follow. This is at the very tip of what becomes the technology scene in Australia. So I think that's important for context. Yeah, there weren't a lot of peers at that point and that made it harder, but I mean, everyone was competing. You know, it was a level playing field in that sense, absolutely. And what I'm hearing is you were solving a very real problem in a unique way. What I'm interested in and to make the first timeline leap is now looking back, how have you thought about investing in businesses, having reflected on your own founding story about what's required, the tenacity, the IQ, the EQ to succeed, which you showed an abundance of? Do you gravitate to a certain type of founder that you can almost see, oh, hang on, that was us when we started Seek? You mean lucky founders? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think, uh, yeah, we, we spend a fair bit of time as a team at Square Peg, just sort of fast forwarding now, you know, 23 years, we spend a lot of time talking about attributes of founders. And I, and I think the starting point is that founders do come in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, it's really easy, like, you know, the founder comes in the doors, come from central casting and just gravitate towards that person. If you look at the founders in, in our portfolio companies, they have come from completely different backgrounds, diverse ages, diverse genders, which is obviously incredibly important. Um, they've done very different things in their, their career. Uh, they're very different individuals. But there are some attributes that we think are pretty common to a lot of founders. One is just, you know, 
doing your life's work or solving an important problem and, and just that that authenticity and passion. You know, if, if a founder comes through the door and there's all these pages on, you know, valuation and what exit multiples will be and kind of it's a very investment banking approach, that is a massive turnoff for us. Yeah. Um, of course, there is motivations around financial security, but generally speaking, the, the primary motivations are around solving a really, really important problem. In some cases, are very obsessive about solving that problem and, and understanding the founding story, understanding how it was that they came to discover that problem and why they're the right people to solve that problem is incredibly important. There's pieces around resilience are obviously really, really important. There's that mix of, and again, this is pretty rare, um, great founders obviously have a very, very high level of self-belief and self-confidence. You have to have almost a bit of hubris to think, I can solve this problem better than anyone else in the world. On the other hand, you need to have the humility to know what you don't know, number one. You need to be prepared to surround yourself with people who are you know, smarter than you perhaps, more experienced in certain areas. And so there's, there's a lot of different attributes that I think make up a great founder. And we certainly, you know, this is an art, not a science, but we certainly try to assess founders across, there's about 10 attributes we look at. And there's a couple of what we call um, showstoppers, yeah. um, which for us, we you know, if, if we encounter those, we we immediately, you know, sort of pull up stumps. To... Could you give a little colour to maybe one or two of those showstoppers? Showstoppers are a lack of integrity, number one. And we, we understand that there is a non-alignment between a founder and investor when the, when the founders try to raise money. We understand that, they're, of course, they're going to put the best foot forward. They're going to talk about the things that are most positive, most exciting about the business. And, of course, founders, by their nature, are pathologically optimistic. And so we expect that we look for that and that's a good thing but if if there are experiences where someone kind of you know basically isn't telling the truth they're dishonest learning about the business learning about the team with you know incidents of just black and white lack of integrity that's really clear for us uh, we won't go into business with people that we think lack integrity and the other one actually it's a showstopper for us which might surprise people is what we call lack of energy and um, you really really need a big level of drive and energy to build a successful startup. And so for us, that again, it's really subjective. But most of the founders that we meet are just such driven, passionate, energetic people. It might manifest itself in different ways. Um, some are very extroverted, some are very introverted. But, you know, that, that level of energy we think is really important. There aren't many low-energy, high-performers across all fields. Yeah, 100%. As you say, you can be introverted, extroverted, but that deep enthusiasm for what you are trying to do. Exactly right. And that deep resonance of, I'm going to do this and they, they will stop at nothing right? yeah exactly right and then that doesn't matter whether it's you know people have very successful careers in investment banking or in law or in you know elite sport like you did or in in politics in music and arts there is that drive there's that energy there's that obsessiveness i mean to be candid sometimes the attributes that make someone incredibly successful in their career are attributes that make it difficult to live with that person. Absolutely. Or, you know, or, yeah. you know they're, they're, there is something underlying driving, driving that, that, that energy, that sense of purpose. And sometimes they can go too far and you end up with a sociopath. But we'll, yeah, exactly we'll, right. We'll, we'll, exactly uh, right. That, that's for another time. The last kind of theme around the founding story, I guess, is it must have given you wonderful empathy for what the founders go through on their scale up or start up and, and then scale up journey and deeply understanding the pain points at each point in that growth curve? I, I think so. I hope so. What I would say is I think that it can go the other way. It can be like, oh, I've done this. 
I've built a successful business. It's not that hard. And remember the story in a in a more linear, yes. easier way than was the reality. I, I hope that's not the case. I hope that that I've got a lot of empathy for our founders, and I hope that they see that. Um, look, I would say though that that I really think and hope that's common to our team. And our team, some of them have operating backgrounds. Some have been founders. Some have been uh, in management consulting or investment banking um, or investing in other asset classes. So there's a real mix of people in the team. And I think hopefully something that's in our DNA at SquarePeg is both a, a passion for the founding journey, but hopefully also real empathy because it is it is massive sacrifices that founders make. Without doubt. Um, one of the threads I, I want to explore here is around strategy and, and business models. And, and let's go back in time to the, the days at Seek. And I spoke to a few of your ex-employees and, and they kind of noted around your strategic vision that not only did you run the best strategy sessions that I've ever seen, but you knew things intuitively that people now write books about. And that's a direct quote, which is a nice way of putting it. But you saw immediate product market fit, $15 million, I think, in revenue in the first three or four years, and you transform the market, how people not only look for jobs, but how they advertise for jobs. Let's just dig into the strategy at Seek and how that might have affected your views now on seeing you know, the strategic decisions that other founders make. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, firstly, you know, I was really lucky, you know, co-founder and Andrew, who's got incredible strategic insight and really, really thinks long-term. And then and then Matt, who kind of drove the sales organisation. So we had a couple of the big pieces covered in, in you know, two of the three founders. But I think there were, there were probably only two big, and again, to some extent, I might be saying this a little bit of benefit of hindsight, but I don't think so. There were two really, really big things. One, strategic and one kind of culture. And then again, I'm talking about the early years, yeah, here, the yeah. first two or three years. And the strategic bit was, which sounds so obvious in hindsight, but it was amazing that it was not obvious to a lot of our competitors and our investors and, and, and others. These are winner-take-all or certainly winner-take-most markets, number one. Number two, we were seeing a disruptive change as a result of you know, the internet appearing. So it was it was blindingly obvious to us even before we started that employment advertising was going to move from print to online, pretty much all of it, number one. And number two, that there was going to be a dominant player in given regions. They were sort of two insights were obvious to us. And so once you've got those insights, and to be honest, we thought that $800 million might become 50 or $100 million. We thought it would shrink enormously. As it's turned out, it's become an enormous pool of money. You haven't had that kind of reduction the size of the market that we would have expected in it more, or might have imagined 97, 98. But once you kind of understand those two things, that this big market is going to move from print to online, number one, and number two, someone's going to dominate it your strategy falls out of that. It's kind of pretty obvious. And, you know, when we, we'd go sometimes see some of our competitors, I remember one organisation having a meeting, a company called employment.com.au, they had an amazing domain name, obviously. And um, they started really early and the founder basically lectured, Andrew and I one day, I remember, basically told us off for sort of wrecking the market for everyone and how do you think you can make money at these price points? And we're like, yeah, look, you know, you make a good point and we'll take that on board. And, you know, the point being, we sort of, we left that meeting and almost sort of certainly metaphorically doing high fives because the extent that a competitor was thinking about the market that way, that was like, wow, that's, you know, we don't think that's a great insight around how these markets work. I think the other point also that Andrew really rammed home a lot and that was really, really important was the primacy of the job seeker, if you like. Again, I think the historically and traditionally in print, 
it was always about looking after the employer or the recruitment firm, after the advertiser. Why wouldn't you? They're the, they're the folks who gave you the money. They're the folks who pay you. And sometimes it's kind of very often the interests of the job seeker and the employer recruiter aren't in, aren't in conflict, but they're in conflict in two senses. One is sometimes when you allocate resources, whether you're going to build a product for the job seeker or build a product for the employer, number one, but also there are a bunch of things around processes and stuff like that, which actually there were decisions we had to make, which you know, recruiters might might have been asking, oh, we really want you to build this product. We really want you to do this. We really want you to insist on this as part of the workflow. But we were like, look, our job is to deliver candidates to you guys. And unless we make this compelling for the job seekers who we think are the scarce resource here, they'll go somewhere else, particularly the best job seekers will go somewhere else. And so, you know, if you make it like this ridiculously long application form that takes someone half an hour to fill in, they're just not going to fill it in, or certainly the best job seekers aren't. And so we would make a bunch of decisions that I think would prioritise the job seekers over the employers, and that was really important. As you grew in the vertical of jobs, I'm sure there were you know, moments in time where there were some really big strategic, big ticket items, and they might have been, do we move horizontally here and have a crack at cars or, or houses, or do we own this vertical and try and create more value up and down the chain and we might need to look internationally? You know, big ticket items. Yeah, they were, they were big decisions. And so a part of the reason we called it Seek, firstly, we didn't want a name that was too generic as describing, you know, you had My Career, which was Fairfax's site. You had Career One, you had Employment.com. People kind of just got super confused. So it was part of the reason using a name like Seek, which was quite descriptive. It was quite a different name to, to the others. But, but truthfully, the other reason we called it Seek was we assumed when we did the business plan that a year in or two years in would expand to real estate and cars. Interesting. And and we looked at expansion into other categories several times and each time decided not to do it and ultimately went down the path of expanding to education and international. You know, early on, I think a couple of things. We weren't going to do it too early in terms of going to other categories because marketplaces are around depth rather than breadth. Whether you're talking verticals, whether you're talking geographically, you'd prefer to be number one in one market than number three or four in 20 markets. The economics are just so favourable to being number one. So we wanted to make sure that we maximised our likelihood of being number one. Number two, you know, by the time we kind of thought about that, you know, we probably had the organisational capability to go into other categories. You know, car sales, who we, we came really close with the guys and realestate.com that you were both built pretty decent businesses. And so, you know, the question we had to ask ourselves is what could we do to unseat guys who had a two or three or four year head start over us. But number three, we actually didn't think we brought that much to bear. We, we, we brought a, an expertise around building marketplaces. We didn't really bring a domain expertise. I mean, each of those markets are different. The platform to some extent was, was applicable, but you know, not that applicable. So basically we bought the brand. To some extent, we brought the relationships with the job seekers, but their relationship with us is, was as job seekers, not as home buyers or as, or as car buyers. And so, you know, each time we looked at it, we, we consciously made the decision. We did seriously look at it a few times. Each time we decided, no, we're not going to do this. And then over time, the evolution of the strategy was to expand internationally, expand into education. And that worked really, really well. And, and Andrew drove that part of the business to sort of the, you know, the growth side of the business. And, and you know, we made investments in, in, in China, Brazil, in Mexico, Southeast Asia, in education with IDP, we started Seek Learning, which came out of a small acquisition. Um, eventually, Swinburne Online, which was not long before I, I left the business. 
basically we thought by going to early stage markets like China, which hadn't yet been won, but we're gonna be very, very big markets, we could apply that same approach and methodology and expertise and hopefully become the number one player in a bunch of really large markets. And so to pull on this thread leaping forward now 20 years, I'm sure what's become apparent is how critical timing is for success around these strategic decisions. You know, if you're too slow, you give others too big a head start. If you're too quick and ahead of the market, it can fail to land. It sounds like that is almost like being a venture capitalist. Yeah, there's a lot of that in there. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, those sorts of decisions, obviously, as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you make lots and lots and lots of different decisions. And we're focusing, you know, now on the sort of the important strategic decisions. But those sorts of decisions around allocating capital, allocating resources, you're absolutely right. They're, they're very analogous to the decisions, you know, we make as VCs. Um, I think, you know, you touched, Ed, on timing. I, I think timing is the most underrated aspect of early stage investing. And that's not, I mean, plenty of people don't underestimate it a lot, but I, I think it's remarkably important. You know, we don't spend enough time talking about why did the iPhone emerge in 2007? Now, of course, you know, part of the reason why the iPhone emerged and, and it emerged at Apple was because you had this incredibly talented, amazing group of people who came together and built a vision of product. But there were so many different factors that meant that the iPhone could work in 2007. Bearing in mind, Apple tried to build the Newton, you know, 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier, complete and utter disaster, complete failure. You couldn't have built it three or four years later because it would have been too late. And so timing is incredibly important. And one of the things we try to understand when we meet founders is kind of why now? You know, what's the catalyst? And often there is a technology catalyst, but there might be other catalysts. You know, MindBody from Memories, a company you guys have invested in. And, you know, there's probably a whole piece around rise of wellness and everything else like that that was probably a, a big catalyst there. I don't know. Um, Allbirds, another company you guys invest in, they're, they're a catalyst for why now for companies usually. Not always. Sometimes it just it's kind of serendipity and it kind of happens then. But there's usually important catalysts driving the particular timing. And that's a really important aspect of what we do. And when setting the big ticket strategic items, as you did at Seek, and now I'm sure you help shape with founders, and maybe we can dig into that. You don't want, I guess, a, an echo chamber of agreement at, at any stage. You want dissent, you want debate. And this is something that emerged from the employees I did talk to. You said you were fantastic at encouraging spirited debate and great at saying no. Has that flowed on to how you think about the world when you are supporting oh, I reckon we could have been better at saying no. That we're, no, look, I think we were pretty focused and pretty disciplined within a spectrum that, you know, it's the nature of a founder, and I'm certainly guilty of this, to kind of think you can do everything and be very optimistic and et cetera. But, yeah, I think we were, we were pretty good at, at saying no. And, yeah, I think on the whole we were – we did a pretty good job, and I'm sure, you know, again, I'm obviously not involved in Seek other than as a shareholder, but certainly all the people I speak to and obviously chat to Andrew, it's still very much part of the DNA, which is a, which is a culture that really, which really encourages debate and, and good ideas can come from anywhere. And that's really, really important. I mean, I think, again, I, I think there's two underlying aspects to that as we invest in companies we think about, and that's both ability and willingness to surround yourself with talent. And, and they're two different things. Firstly, some people are just better than others at identifying really, really great talent. Some people just have a skill, whether it's in sport, whether it's in business, in whatever area of identifying really, really talented people. 
But secondly, there's a mindset piece that you actually want to surround yourself with people who are going to challenge you, surround yourself with people who are incredibly bright, where you're going to have these spirited debates. Is that the sort of organization you want? Everyone says they do. We're never going to meet a founder. We're never, we're never ever going to meet a founder who's going to say to us, look, you know, I just want to surround myself with a bunch of idiots who are going to agree with me. Um, no one's ever going to say that. So everyone's going to tell you what you want to hear on that point. So a lot of it is just about observing the interaction with their colleagues, how they interact, the mutual respect between them, how comfortable you know the other members of the leadership team and other people in the organisation are around around the founder or founders, the share of voice in in conversations, you know, chatting to founders about what they're looking for in hires and maybe we'll come back to that. I mean, I, I think it's important to think quite consciously about hiring people across three attributes, if you like, values alignment, horsepower or raw talent and experience and just thinking across those attributes and, and deciding quite consciously what you want to optimise for. And so those things are, yeah, I think they're a very, very important part of what we do when we invest in companies. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. I think there's a great time to lead into people and culture and and leadership lessons. Um, I guess I'm trying to understand initially what was the culture you were trying to foster at Seek. I think we've heard a, a little bit of that. The past employees said no one ever wanted to leave Seek, ever. Once you were there, you realised it was the best place to work in Melbourne. And it was before culture was really a corporate word. It wasn't bandied around like it is today and there was no glass door and there was no transparency around a corporate culture. And yet you decided that you were going to put this at the top of the tree. And that really fascinates me because that, to me, is what actually drove the success. The people inside Seek drove the success of Seek over the next two decades. No question, yeah. At the time, I know you hired slowly, you hired very deliberately, and you optimised... I think, for raw ability, less so experience and the values piece. And so this sounds like a technology company of the 2000s and and later rather than something that was built in the 90s. Yeah, I I think I said at the beginning or early on that I think there were two big things and two broad things we got right and and lots lots of detail in between that we got wrong. But the second big piece was around people and culture. And this, of course, was a journey. I mean, you know, when, bear in mind, when we started, I was 29, I worked as a lawyer, um, none of us had really managed people before, um, we had, none of us had technology backgrounds, etc. So we sort of learned on the job. A lot of it was first principle learning, frankly, and, you know, learning through, through trial and error, lots of iteration. But I think there are a couple of points that are really important. One is, to some extent, um, all of us in our previous careers there were elements of the culture where we worked and I certainly remember this where there were lots of great things about the cultures where the three of us worked but there were elements where I was like I remember quite specifically even having conversations with people when I was at Block Lever saying oh if I was running this place I wouldn't do it this way type thing and so once you're running your own business and literally you've got a clean sheet of paper yeah. there's no excuse you can't then sort of say oh we haven't got the money to do this etc cetera, etc cetera. that's probably point one Point two was, and again, I don't think you hear this that often now, but you certainly heard a lot then, was like, oh, there's a trade-off between having a great culture and being profitable. Like, you know, the one hand, you can have a really great culture where everyone kind of feels, you know, where it's inclusive and people get their say and it's a great place to work, et cetera. 
but you know that's so expensive and it's easy for you guys, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you do that in a low margin retail business or whatever? From our perspective, there, there's no trade off at all. You know, great cultures lead to great outcomes, and people, I think confuse the causation you know they they kind of think oh well this company's profitable so they can spend a lot of money on you know things around development and culture and whatever those things are and pay people really really well and whatever it's almost always the causation is the other way that's the sort of the the second point um third point was is that we were competing against Fairfax we're competing against News Corp we're competing against Monster.com that had come to Australia before we launched um, Hot Jobs another US player a bunch of startups in Australia we didn't have much money we didn't have much experience you know the only thing that we had was attitude and mindset and drive and perhaps clarity of vision and so you know the core asset in our business, you know, wasn't the website of the platform. The original platform took us three months to build. You know, it was harder then to build it than it is now, but it wasn't that hard, three or four months. And so the only thing that we had was just people who were aligned, passionate, motivated, driven. You know, you mentioned about people not wanting to, to leave seat. You know, in investment banks, people, you know, resign en masse after, uh, after bonus season. At Seek, no one, no one would resign before the Christmas party. Like, no one's like, that was like such a, <laughs> that was such a fun highlight of the year. And, you know, and, and those relationships, I mean, that was the thing that I guess is most impactful for me. I'm, I'm catching up tomorrow night with six or seven former colleagues from Seek and we catch up you know, a couple of times a year when, when, when I'm up here and they're just, they're lifelong friendships yeah. and that's, that's really, really special. And so I think, you know, number one, it was a key element to us being successful, but number two, you spend, you spend so much time at work. Like why wouldn't you want to have fun? If you've got two groups of people, everything else is the same. And the first group of people, they love working with each other. They have a high level of mutual respect. They support each other. They have a lot of fun. They laugh a lot. And the second group, it's just that they don't really like each other. They, you know, they, they're sort of forced together. That's just the way it works. But they don't really enjoy it. If they, if they had a better job opportunity, they'd get out of here tomorrow. Which organisations can be more successful? I mean, the, the question is so... The question is so obvious. The answer is so obvious. I don't know why everyone doesn't do it. Yeah, and it's the same experience that I, that I had playing cricket. You could play for multiple teams around the world at almost simultaneously. And so you've got this great compare and contrast of different team cultures at the same time, which was a really unique perspective. And exactly that would happen. One team would be a fantastic group of people and would win substantially more than the team of great players who hated playing cricket or hated playing with each other. And the outcome would be the opposite. And so you could get a very fast snapshot of, of what great cultures look like. 100%. You know, I remember actually one night up in Sydney and caught up with some of the, some of the team up here and one of our team up here, um, her partner, a few partners came out with us and he hadn't met anyone from Seek before. And he was like, he said to me during the night, he said, you guys like a cult. And I think, I think he meant it as an insult, but I, I took it as a compliment. I was like, yeah, it was Absolutely. amazing. Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, hopefully a good cult, not a bad cult. Uh, no drinking the Kool-Aid or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> and, and what about your own leadership style? Because it, it has been described as, as hands-off. You let people run at problems. Report in when you feel like you need some assistance or report back if you feel like you're going off track at all. But a lot of rope was given to people that you deeply trusted in, in not only in those early days, but as the, the business scaled. Was that something that you deliberately decided to instill or was that just Paul? Um, 
I think number one, there's a sort of, you know, it's an insight you'd get better from asking others and from asking me. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously questions of sort of self-awareness bound up in that. I think to some extent, my leadership style has too much been sort of one or the other. Yeah, look, if, if I've worked with someone closely and I have a really, really high level of trust, I, I will, you know, give them a lot of autonomy, perhaps at times give them too much room and space. One of the things I actually learned from my first boss as a lawyer, he was amazing at kind of identifying when I was floundering and hopefully I've developed a reasonable antenna for that, you know, where the person needs help or where they need a bit of encouragement or need a bit of support. But but certainly there are times, I mean, I'm, I'm an operator at my core and so there's definitely times where I think I'd probably too get too involved in, in the detail of things. Um, you know, it seek, for me, that manifested itself probably most in the product and secondly, customer interaction. Mm. That was the stuff I spent a lot of time on. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think my skills as a leader are, I, I think I'm very good at identifying talent and, and well, I've always optimised for values alignment and raw ability over experience. I think experience is the most the most overrated attribute in hiring. Not that it's unimportant if, if you want someone hiring a pilot or hiring a surgeon. I'd want them ex- to know how to fly a plane. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Experience is really important. But a lot of areas we just over-index for experience. Not that it's unimportant, but we just over-index for I experience. Um, and so I think, I, I think I've always been good at talent identification. I think I've been good at giving people the opportunity to, to be successful, hopefully creating clarity around around vision and direction, supporting them. I, I would say I'm probably a better leader than I am a manager. I'm not sure I'm a great manager. It's hard to do both at the yeah, same time. Yeah, no, they're different. They're very yeah. different skills. So having understood more deeply the culture that you did build at Seek and, and how you thought about that, how do you now leapfrogging to the present – try and evaluate the people and the culture of, of the portfolio companies that you're invested in or, or potentially looking to invest in? It's a really hard question because the trap, of course, would be, oh, look, unless, you know, both as we evaluate companies and as you serve on boards, et cetera, to basically say, hey, well, these are the cultural aspects that should be important. And, of course, that's not the point. Every company, every group of founders and, and teams, they get to decide what their culture is going to be, number one. And so we, you know, We've got to find the right balance between not trying to interfere and not trying to tell people, well, your culture should be more like this. And this is what we did at Seek. The last thing people want to hear from, from me saying, well, this is what we did at Seek and this is what you should is like, oh, yeah, like seriously, like that was that was in the Stone Ages, mate. And that's um, an important shift in mindset as well from operator to investor. 100%. You know, on the other hand, yeah, if there are attributes to the culture that we think are toxic or are problematic – I mean, number one, we won't invest in a company like that, but also it's really important to support our portfolio companies who are having challenges and issues. And and so it's it's a hard balance. What I would say is I think a company needs to be crystal clear around what its values are and what its culture is and execute on that. I think that's the most important thing. There, there is no point like as part of an interview process sort of saying, oh, we have a really, really inclusive culture and we give you lots and lots of autonomy. If the reality is different, you're just going to attract the wrong people into the organisation, and they're going to get frustrated. They're going to get. They're going to leave. And so, if you've got more of a command and control culture, for example, it's not something that I kind of get energised or passionate by. But you know, if that's the nature of your founders, and that's how they operate, and and that's how the organisation is going to evolve, that's okay. You must get a sniff though that that isn't necessarily going to get the best outcome. Well, it may well be not be a company that we're going to invest in. But the point being is. 
lots of companies have been successful with lots of different cultures, even cultures that you or I might say, oh, that's that's really not for us. Or, you know, I would argue in some cases companies have been successful in spite of their culture rather than because of their culture. But the most important thing, clarity around what that culture is, what those values are, being very explicit about it and orient the organisation, whether it's in relation to performance management, whether it's in relation to reward and recognition generally, whether it's in relation to, to strategy, to ensure that there is an alignment between that culture and how the organisation operates. And that's really, really important. And, and it is hard. If you want to have a highly autonomous, inclusive, fun culture, it's not easy. You've actually got to work incredibly hard at it. And we, we worked unbelievably hard and we certainly weren't perfect that we made lots of mistakes. I think that's the point, that the culture is a living organism. And so it needs to be tended to the whole time. It's not, here's the culture and we're going to live by it. People need to be actually putting things into that pot and, and making sure that it is sustainable for the long term. And so that these, That's exactly right. these cultures that might succeed because of the culture actually might not be that durable. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'd sort of say to any any founder who's listening or any mem- members of leadership teams or aspiring founders, et cetera, is just think about a normal sort of startup. Let's just say, for example, you are, I don't know, you're going pretty well, you've raised a series A, you've got 50 people in your organisation. Let's just say for argument's sake, you have 20% turnover in a year, which is quite high, hopefully be low. But let's just say you've got 20% turnover in a year. That's 10 people, that 50 becomes 40. Let's say by the end of the year, you've gone from 50 people to 80 people. You know, 40 of those, you know, the 30 new hires plus the 10 replacement roles, 40 out of 80 people in the organisation are brand new to the organisation within 12 months. By the way, that's exactly what we've got at Square Peg at the moment. I want to come back to that. That's kind of just a pretty common example. And so there's a lot of times in your organisation's history, maybe as you get bigger and grow more, that those numbers will come off a little bit. But there are going to be a lot of periods where you look forward 12 months and actually 50% of the people in the company will have started in that 12-month period. If you go a little bit off with your hiring, if you go a little bit off with your onboarding, with embedding the culture, embedding the values, you hire you know, in a team of eight or 10 people someone who's just a really, really bad fit. These things can change overnight. They are not set and forget. You need to be working on them and managing them all the time. And it's great if you've got an amazing thought leader in HR as a partner. But this is something that the founders have to own, I think. This is absolutely critical to the success of your organisation. But also, you know, you want to be proud of what you built. And being proud of what you built is not just having a company worth a lot of money and and making a lot of money personally and having articles about you. You want to build those lifelong friendships. You want people to be incredibly passionate advocates for your, for your organisation. Those things, I think, for most people are really, really important. And you've got to work at them. They don't happen by accident. It's wonderful advice. The next theme I want to explore is the role of a high-functioning board, uh, and excuse my uh, lack of corporate governance knowledge of, of mid-90s startups, but I, I'm going to assume that your first board, you know, was investor-based, yep. probably low-value add, and then that got upgraded over time as you moved to being a public company, and, and now, you know, the board speaks for itself. But just that experience of upgrading a board, what does a great board look like to you, not only in those early days but the growth stages and then as a business is scaling and and what does a great you know non-executive director look like yeah I think the first thing for me the starting point's always been a lot about alignment and so I, I say this to founders all the time if your choice and hopefully it's not your choice but if your choice is between an investor who's a complete idiot who's just 
incredibly supportive of what of what you do is is there in the hard times there in the good times really supporting you passionate about what you do and they don't really add much value above and beyond that that is better than an incredibly smart incredibly experienced investor who is just you know basically undermining you or always being critical or you feel like they're on a different side and you're accountable to them rather than everyone being on the same side and working collaboratively so if they're your choices if it's that binary i think it's a really easy choice of course what we want in a perfect world is someone who has very, very high alignment and adds enormous value. And that value could be added in lots and lots of different ways. It could be strategic value. It could just be what great advice. It could be you know access to their networks. There's a whole lot of different things board members can do. Most boards evolve, and certainly ours at Seek did, was is like, you know, with investors come new directors. And there's a couple of problems with that conceptually. One is just the numbers keep growing. And, you know, we looked around one day, there's like 46 people around the board table. Maybe not quite, but you know what I mean? It kind of got a bit big and a bit clunky, number one. And number two, you know, board members come with with new investment rounds and the mix of skills and... Like an um, operator now. Yeah, all those things, you don't necessarily get a great mix. So number one, be really thoughtful about, you know, when you're talking to someone, it's really tempting. It's like, you know, you've got three venture funds, really, really keen. And one of them's offering you a valuation, a pre-money valuation of $80 million. And another one's offering you a pre-money valuation of $60 million. The temptation's always to go with the guys at $80 million. And by the way, you know, I've been a founder as well. Of course you want less dilution. And in a perfect world, the best investor is the person who offers the highest valuation in a perfect world. But it doesn't always work out that way. I had a great conversation with a founder a few years ago, um, Yaron Galai, who was the founder, Israeli founder, founder of Outbrain. And he was like, you know, he had a very, he was very clear about what he was looking for from investors. Number one was the individual who was leading the round, who was going to be serving on, on his board and going to be his partner for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve years, huge period of time. Number two was the firm itself. He was conscious of the fact that, yeah, look, it's great to have a you know terrific relationship with Ed. You're going to add a lot of value, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to know about the firm. I know as a partnership, as a firm, you're going to be making investment decisions. I want to understand how that works. I want to understand what the dynamic is. I want to make sure you have the appropriate influence within the firm, et cetera, et cetera. So that secondly is, is the firm. Third was the terms. And fourth was the valuation. Now, I'm not saying that's the right framework. That was his framework. The point is, is that when you think about investors and you think about who is going to lead your round, just make sure you give appropriate weight to all the factors, including I'm going to be partners with this individual for the next five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. I want to make sure this is someone I like, I trust, who's going to add value. Then there's an element around making sure that as your board grows, having complementary skills, complementary backgrounds, very aligned in terms of the vision and the purpose and what you're trying, where you're trying to get to, but quite different and complementary in terms of the skills and mindset and the things they bring to bear. Yeah, I think just zooming out of the, the startup world and, and moving up the growth curve a little bit, it becomes harder in, in many ways to align interests and having experienced the West Farmers Board, you get into these big ASX companies and, and the boards actually say, we want to be independent. We don't want to own shares in the business. We need to be independent of, of shareholders. And in my mind, it's like, well, that's the worst possible situation. You want to be independent of management. Yep. You want to be heavily aligned yeah, to shareholders. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think my West Farmers experience was great. Was, I mean, other than Seek, where you know, you're a founder, so it's very different and evolved differently. You know, sort of West Farmers is the one 
public company experience I've had, and I really enjoyed it. I think West Farm is a unique animal because, well, the thing that I loved about my involvement there was, I, I remember even the first time I went, you know, I met with the board, they were having their offside, I flew up to the Hunter Valley. It was a very modest, humble culture. You know, those days of a farmer's cooperative, which ended in the mid-80s, I think, when West, West Farmers listed, was still a little bit ingrained in the DNA. So it was a lot of humility in the culture. And I also thought everyone was there for the right reason. And they weren't there because, you know, for ego reasons or to, you know, have a, you know, supplement their income or whatever. They really, they really cared deeply about the business. So, so that part I really, really loved. But yeah, the whole way in which public company boards come together and the incentives of public company directors are just are just wrong. And so, you know, you if you think about it just purely, I remember actually chatting to Alan Moss after he left Macquarie. He was chatting about what he's going to do. And I said, oh, well, you go on public company boards. He's just like, that is, that is the last thing I'm going to do. It's like, you know, the, the risk-reward trade-off. And I think we just need to be careful about that in this country. I mean, you know, you if you, let's just say you've basically got a nominal amount of shares in a company, you paid, call it $200,000 a year, which absolutely is a lot of money. And I don't want to pretend it's not, not a lot of money to be on the board of a large public company. But your upside is known, as in you'll earn $200,000 a year, you'll make a little bit of money from the few shares you own, et cetera, et cetera. There might be a compulsory aspect of some of the board fees going to buying shares, et cetera. It's going to be fun being involved in a, in a successful company. Your downside is essentially uncapped. It's like being a short seller. I mean, your downside is uncapped. You know, worst case, very, very worst case, you could end up in jail. That's obviously, fortunately, incredibly rare. But but your reputation could be damaged. You could be caught up in some big scandal and you have to give evidence to a you know, royal commission or inquiry. Um, your career might be over after this. As an investor, we look for asymmetrical risk when we're investing companies. We're looking for asymmetrical risk to the upside. Being a public company director in, in concept, as I said, I had an amazing experience at West Farmers. I loved it. It's a, it's a brilliant company. But if we're just talking conceptually, the model of public life generally, not just public company boards, but let's talk specifically about public company boards, the model of public company boards is broken. The asymmetrical risk to the downside is, when you think about it logically and rationally, is just so extreme. And no wonder boards just become incredibly risk averse because the list of things that can go wrong for them personally and for the business is just so big, it's just not worth the risk. Feels like we could have an entire podcast episode on this because there are some deep beliefs on this side of the table that uh, I'd love to discuss another time, but this is probably not the forum, but well said. The last theme I want to explore is around fundraising. And you mentioned that the Rockman family were the first source of funds. I think there was another $1.5 million that went in. You then were thinking about listing the business only after two and a half years and you, and you had the, the 2000.com complete bust and yeah. there was Armageddon yeah. and, and you were left sort of scratching your nose wondering where your, your next dollar was coming from when the, when the capital market shut. I'm interested in, in that experience and how it has shaped your views now as a, someone who's writing the checks. But I think more interestingly is maybe the discussion around the compare and contrast between 2000 and what we've experienced during COVID where the, the capital markets have remained open yeah. and, in, and in some cases very frothy and yet there's this sort of dislocation with the world. Yeah, look, and I've been, if I think about my arc of my career, it's been sort of four major crises, 91, 92 recession. At the start of my career, I mentioned 2000.com crash. GFC 2007, 2008, and really, I mean, the ramifications mm. continuing for many, many years afterwards. And, and of course, this year, and, you know, 
it's really easy to draw conclusions. And I I think certainly some of the things that we said and thought kind of turned out not to be correct. And and part of the issue is, is that every crisis is different and you've got a data set. Well, now my data set is four. It's a pretty small data set. You know, most other people in Australia, their data set is way smaller than that. Dot-com crash was pretty seminal for us. Um, you know, the big difference between 2000 and 2020 was 2000 was all about the overhyping of technology, the failure of technology. You know, if, if I think about the arc of us as founders, you know, it's like late 97, early 98, what's the internet? What the hell are you doing? Why are you trying to get your idiots? Why are you competing with Fairfax News? Then like your absolute geniuses, you know, the whole dot-com thing became incredibly hot. The back slapping. Yeah, there was, there was plenty of black slapping. And then in 2000, again, April 2000, you're an idiot again. <laughs> and and certainly the genius part wasn't true. Hopefully the idiot part wasn't true. The truth is always, the truth is always more boring and more mundane than that. And it's somewhere in between. Of course, 2020 to some extent is about the kind of the rise of the internet. And, you know, we're 25 plus years into the story of the internet, but that's been the great theme. The, the two great themes the past 25 years have been the rise of China and the rise of the internet and the digitization of everything. And and so what 2020 has been about is, you know, of course, if COVID had occurred in 1992, 1993, our ability to operate as a society would have, it just would have been disastrous. You know, no, no school, no work from home, no ability to buy groceries online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We know the, we know the whole story. And so the progress made in terms of innovation last 25 years has made this year, of course, more manageable, notwithstanding it's been an incredibly brutal year for so many people in so many different ways, but it's made it more manageable. Of course, it's also seen in a lot of areas a a decade's worth of of disruption, whether it's in education, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in remote work. You know, I I laughed. I mean, I was cleaning up my office in sort of, you know, just pre-lockdown and, you know, cleaning up my office and reading some old articles and stuff like that. And I, I came across two things in one go. One was a, a Time magazine cover story from 1997, which was about the, um, it was, I think, called the death of the death of the mall, the death of the shopping centre. And the other one was actually a, a, just a, a, a screenshot of the Sikhs homepage, very, very first homepage where there was an article, The Rise of Telecommuting. And it's kind of quite funny because, I mean, you know, both of those were kind of more or less 20 years ahead of their time. Yeah. And so, you know, this era has been, of course, about the acceleration of technology trends, technology companies are perceived as winners, plus evaluations have gone up even more in, in the listed space because, of course, people have said, where am I going to put my capital? And they've directed towards tech companies. I think we've got to all got to be really, really careful that we don't, you know, that there's not too much hubris, we don't get too convinced, you know, things go up, things go down. But what doesn't change is the, the inexorable trend of innovation and disruption and what that means for, for countries, for companies, individuals in their career and, and that's the story of our life or one of the stories of our life and it's not going to slow down that that innovation and the disruption that comes with that yeah i've heard you say we, we could well be entering the greatest phase of innovation of, of maybe this century but i'm curious just to zoom in very quickly as to that period after the 2000 crash and now the empathy that that's given you for maybe founders who are trying to raise money yeah. in in a not so hot space, but might have a wonderful business, uh, you know, of the last six months. Yeah, and I think you know, and again, and you would have this Ed, in your portfolio, and we certainly have it in our portfolio, which is there are companies that are absolutely flying as a result of COVID. Companies like Fiverr, Canva, etc., 
and to some extent, this this crisis has accelerated. There are other companies. WeGo is a great example. It's an online online travel business um, through no fault of their own. You know, it's been an incredibly tough year. Even with Rocked, which is a business that you know we've both invested in, is it's a tough, much tougher year this year, and they've done an unbelievable job. You know, where travel and entertainment obviously been really tough categories, and retail's just become so much for more important category for their business. And as a general proposition, you know, our March April was just about spending as much time as we could with that portfolio, from from a capital perspective, from a mindset perspective, from a strategy perspective, making sure they were well placed to to bear the wins. The other thing is really interesting, and I don't think they might be saying, there's a couple of our portfolio companies that have had exposure to categories like retail and hospitality. Um, Vend would be a good example. Um, Deputies, another example. Well, I think we probably would have thought, and the founders would have thought, this is going to be a really, really tough couple of years or so. And for some of these businesses, the low month was April. Oh, sorry, May. It was like big fall in April, fell a little bit again in May, and started growing again from June. And so actually been really, really surprised for a lot of these companies that were exposed to some of these markets were very, very hit by COVID. Actually, the downturn's been much slower than expected. But it's been an amazing year for some companies. It's been a brutal year for other companies. We're blown away again and again by the resilience of a lot of our founders who have been caught in the crossfire. And our job is absolutely to support them in every way, financially and you know, with advice and input and in any way we can on their journey is they're, you know, dealing with stuff outside their control. Well said. Let's wrap this all up in a bow. You've been so generous with your time. I ask the same question of, of all my guests and, and that is looking back 20 years when this whole journey started for you, a little bit longer for you, but not, not much yeah, longer. a little bit longer. Is there any one piece of advice that Paul Bassett in 2020 would give his former self in 1997. But I'm also going to add another little trick question. If that Paul walked through the door to Square Peg and asked for that first check, yeah, would you have oh, that's and that's that's a really that's a really hard, really unfair question. I hope so is the answer to the second question. But it's a it's a great question. I have asked myself that a couple of times, and it's important to remind yourself of that because we'll see you know across the team we'll see 1,500, 2,000 companies a year and. Every single founder is incredibly passionate and energized and often it's the most, well, usually it's the most important thing happening in, in their in their world. And so you need to be empathetic. We say no to a lot of people. We need to be you know, really honest about the reasons why we're saying no. Hopefully out of every conversation they can take something, whether it's an introduction or just an idea or a suggestion. But it's a, it's a great question and something important for us to remind ourselves. But the answer is I, I hope. You know, square peg with a backseat, but who knows? Um, first part of the question, I think I've thought about career in a sort of, to the extent I think about career, think about it in a sort of a non-linear way. For me, it's sort of a much more organic thing than a sort of a, a linear thing. And I've been incredibly blessed and incredibly fortunate in my career. But the only thing of career advice I ever give to, because people sort of say, should I take this job or should I do this? Or should I start this business? I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to ask them a bunch of questions and get them to play back they're thinking to me, but I'm never going to tell someone whether they should take a job or not take a job. It's not, you know, it's not my place to tell them. What I would say is when you think about career, it doesn't matter whether you're a founder, it doesn't matter whether you're working for BHP, whether you're working in a small business, you know, whatever whatever your job is, you know, for me, the definition of career success is really, really simple. If, if you can find the intersection of something you enjoy and something that you're good at, keep doing it. If you're not in that space um, and you're not particularly good at what you do or you're not enjoying what you do, whether it's the company or the job, do something different. 
And, uh, you know, we, we are, it's so cliche. We only get one go at it, but you've got to be authentic and true to yourself and don't do something because, you know, it's the right thing to do or that's what your friends are doing or it has a higher income. Do something because you, you find it incredibly rewarding. You love the business you work in. You're good at what you do. And, it, and if you're lucky enough to have found something like that, like do that for the next 40 years. If not, go find something else. Well said. Paul, thanks so much for your time. This has been an absolute treat. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ed. Thanks.